Welcome to Politics and Psychology. I'm Dr. Renee Carr, and I apologize for missing our time last week. I'm also unfortunately going to miss our time this week, and I thought about it. I don't think I've ever explained to you all the role that I have outside of Politics and Psychology podcast. So I'm a political and corporate advisor, and I serve elected officials and high-profile CEOs, and I also address crises at the local and national level. So I have been resolving a crisis for the past two weeks, so I'm not going to be available, but I did not want to miss you, and I hopefully didn't want you to have to miss me too long. So please enjoy this recent interview I did with Michael Ashford. He is a communications expert, a TEDx speaker, and he is known as a thought leader for how we can communicate for true connection. So please enjoy this interview I did, and as I explored understanding and reframing conflict and telling your ego to calm down so that you can have true connection, even if the conflict is within yourself. So listen in and definitely enjoy. Hey friend, it's Michael and I've got a question for you or more perhaps a request. Take a moment and consider the following. How does it feel when someone disagrees with you? Where does your mind go? How does your body react? What actions do you take? Welcome to the follow-up question. I'm your host, Michael Ashford. Come with me on a journey as I explore how we communicate well. What we have been taught about communication and what has been modeled and incentivized through our culture has left us in a place where we know how to exert our ideas and opinions and beliefs onto each other, but we miss the other half of conversation, the extraction. I'm a former journalist who believes everyone has a story to tell, and it's only when we ask questions and listen that we reveal what connects us as humans. Our dreams, our desires, our experiences, our ideas, and what we stand for rather than what we are against. I heard you say something and I want to read it back to you and then I want to get your thoughts on it. I want to go a little bit deeper here on something that I I came across in my research for our, our discussion here. You said, I think conflict is honest because conflict states that we don't agree. Now, I want to I want to give the full context of what you were talking about here. So I want to go on, but I want to come back to that. You went on to say it can be healthy and good as far as outcomes if you're willing to acknowledge that we are different. But how can we come to a solution? But if your conflict is just conflict for the sake of conflict, then that would be maladaptive, nonproductive, and that would not be good. We're just arguing for the sake of arguing. So, Renee, I want to go back to the first part because I think that's really a really fascinating way to look at things. But I want to I want to go deeper on that. You said, I think conflict is honest because conflict states that we don't agree. What do you mean by that? Well, it states that we don't agree. Sometimes um, we are egocentric. So that means we think that everyone thinks how we think. Everyone wants what we want. Everyone feels what we feel. And so by you having a conflict, it shows, okay, that person has something that's different in their thoughts, feelings, or goals, or perception than what I do. And once we know that, then it could be a very mutually beneficial conversation by, okay, well, then what do you want? And it's not just all about me. 
we can discuss what our differences are, then we can also learn more about the other person versus thinking everyone is a mini me or just a reflection of me. So when you have conflict, it shows that you can have a deeper level of your relationship by recognizing that we're different, but how can we still move together forward in a way that's helping both of us? Is that how we often look at conflict, though? I feel like we look at conflict as, oh, this is a bad thing, and therefore right. that that person who disagrees with me or that I have conflict with must be bad or wrong or my enemy. Is that how we often take <laughs> We don't often go into conflict thinking like that, do we? <laughs> Yeah, well, so it takes a little bit more of a maturity for emotional intelligence. So if you think of like a two-year-old, if I don't get a cookie, the world is completely crumbling and devastation and I'm falling out and having a tantrum. When you get older, you recognize that, okay, well, cookie is not that important. So the same thing with, with relationships or conversations. If I recognize that we have a conflict as an opportunity for us to grow, grow closer together, then you're showing a deeper level of emotional intelligence, a relational connection, and you're able to see whether it's a leader or a husband and wife situation. It's like, okay, well then, okay, well now I can learn more about you and you can learn more about me. And by us learning what each of us is different in, then we can also grow closer and having more happiness levels and more fulfillment because we're actually helping both of us achieve our needs and both of us achieve our goals. And so, yeah, most people don't go into conflict if they are really trying to re understand the person, they usually don't go into it. They're like, oh, if you don't agree with me, then you're this evil, bad person. But that comes from a very egocentric, self-centered perspective and also reflects uh, an area of where emotional intelligence needs to be increased. Okay, big question then here, Renee. How do we increase that level of emotional intelligence? To not see yeah. conflict, as you just said, as this, the world is against me, or this, this thing is, is the end all be all this conflict, this point of contention. How do we, how do we foster that emotional yeah. intelligence, that setting aside of ego in more people? I think that, I think the Chinese have kind of coined it with the yin and yang with every crisis, there's an opportunity. And so if you have a conflict, you can see that as a crisis in your relationship or conversation. And instead of thinking of it as a bad thing, okay, this is an opportunity for us to gain clarity. And if I see it as a benefit rather than a negative, then I'm more willing to explore that. But also when it comes to conflict, there is a deeper level psychologically, meaning that if you don't agree with me, that it's either reflecting my own beliefs that I'm not good enough or that I'm wrong and therefore I'm responding defensively so that I can protect myself and avoid rejection. It may come from a sense of I'm a controlling person and everyone just has to agree with me, but I'm controlling because I feel as if, <clears throat> if I don't have control, then I will lose control of who I am and my personality or my self-confidence isn't that, you know, isn't that good. Or I could just be narcissistic and I just want everyone to agree with me. So it's think about on a deeper level for emotional intelligence, what does it mean to me when someone disagrees with me or when I have conflict? If I grew up in a household, for example, where someone um, was an alcoholic parent and disagreements meant it's going to have a fight, we're going to have the emergency room you know, visits or 911 or the police called, I may do everything I can to avoid conflict. And therefore, conflict means danger to me. 
So look at what are your reasons for reaction with hostility or defensiveness when there is conflict. Reconcile that within yourself. Like, okay, well, it's okay. It'll be okay if things don't go well. This is a good thing. And if you see it from a healthier perspective of why you have emotional triggers that are more unpleasant and anxiety or frustration triggering, then, okay, well, then now what I know what it triggers resolve those issues. And now I can come back and seeing conflict as a, indeed an opportunity. You may have just shaken some people's foundations there, but I want to, I want to be clear on what <laughs> you just said. Your response to conflict often is an inner reflection. Am I getting that a reflection That's of right. things that you struggle with? Am I getting that right? That's right. That's mm. right. Because the way that you see conflict. So let's think about it on a very, very, uh, basic example that would be non-threatening. If someone said, if, um, if I'm a person and I made you a cake and you refused my cake and I'm very sensitive about my baking skills by you saying, no, I may feel as if my skills are not good enough. You don't like my food. And if, if in my culture, food means relationship, then that means so many things to me that you just saying no or not liking what I like or wanting what I want to give you is seen on a multiple layers of rejection. But if I'm like, okay, well, we're both on a diet. Let's both, we both don't need to have this cake. Then it can seem like, okay, this is a good thing. We're both going to just lose weight and be extra sexy bikini ready. And it's going to be okay. So it depends on what your initial reaction and belief is of when anyone disagrees with you. And then you can recognize, okay, well, why does that? So recognizing from a more simple level, then say, okay, well, I can go from there. What happens, Renee, when we don't do that exploration then? What, what does that lead to where, where conflict feels, uh, I guess, where conflict is never turned inward and we do the work ourselves to kind of have that reflection right. of why I'm responding this way? What does that lead to? What can that lead to? Well, it definitely leads to a society where there's no true progress. Hmm. It also leads to a very stagnated personal growth because you could never really solve a lot of issues without some type of resistance to help you become your best. You know, it might be cliche, but think about weightlifting or weight training. You may burn calories by going to the gym, but unless you actually have some resistance training to define your muscles that make you work a little bit harder, then you're not going to have the more clarified, precise goals and outcomes that you want. And the same thing with society. Maybe what you think is based off of your experiences, but it's not what someone else may experience, either in their society or their community or even their own family. And so if you go and face a situation based off of only your experience and your knowledge, then you're not going to be able to have someone else say, well, what about this? And what about that? And so you can't truly become more expansive in your outcomes, either on a societal level or even on a one-to-one -one relationship. And that's a lot of pressure to put on ourselves, right? To, to have all the answers. <laughs> it that... is. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> and you should say, it, it, you know, it's, it's okay to not be perfect. And as a high achiever, that says a lot. <laughs> so it's like, okay, it's okay to not be perfect and to not have all the answers, but it's okay because that means I don't have to do everything all by myself. Well, as a, as a, you know, long time weightlifter myself, I, I love that analogy. <laughs> yeah. 
so this this flows into something else that I have heard you say uh, as I was researching for our conversation is is that um, hate is often worn as a badge of honor these days. Yes, yes, yes. Does that feed into this? Um, having haters, yes. And so if someone says, oh, they're disagreeing with me because they are haters, meaning I'm just so great that I have people who actually hate me being successful or hate me saying something which I think is positive. Again, it goes to a level of emotional immaturity so that I'm wearing hate as a badge of honors because people are disagreeing with me or trying to cancel me. And therefore, that means I'm doing something good. Mm. And that I'm worthy of of having haters. Like I'm at that level of influence that I can even rile someone up and get them angered. So they do wear it as a badge of hate, especially now in society where being having a hater means that you're just such this great influential person that people are coming against you in a negative way. How does that influence how we move through the world? Mm. Well, that's more of a new phenomenon of having haters and being proud of having people supposedly hate you. It's not the true definition of hate, but if you move through the world and you believe that having someone hate you is a good thing, then you'll be hypersensitive to anyone who disagrees with you now also means that they hate me. And so that means you're not really open to any true communication or connection because if anyone disagrees with you, you slap this label of hate on And therefore, there's this impasse that you're not willing to go through. Because if you truly believe someone is hating you, that, again, creates a psychological defense of I need to protect myself. Because hate means you want to destroy me or ruin me. And therefore, I had to come back just as vile, as vicious as you, so I can protect myself, preserve myself, and let you know that you're not winning or defeating me. And so it creates this... uh, a circle of hostility and lack of progress because you're thinking that hate is a good thing. So you've already embraced it. And if you embrace it as a good thing, then you'll be hypersensitive to everyone saying anything they don't like or that you don't like. Again, I think you're kind of rocking some people's world here with what you just said, especially (laughs) going back to, uh, I believe you phrased it as, if people if people hate me or if I see people as hating me, then I must be doing something good or right, right. Or, or perhaps right. even I'll use the word righteous. What That's is right. the appropriate way to to look at that then? If somebody we've kind of been talking about it, maybe circling around it, but mm-hmm. what would be a more appropriate way to look at hate or I know we've been using the word conflict if in right. receiving that butting of heads and ideas? What do you think would be a more appropriate way to deal with that? I think the best way would be when you are in a non-agitated, non-anxious, non-fearful state to truly reflect and write down what does it mean to hate someone? What is the true definition of hate and hateful actions or hate crimes? Once I know that definition, I would then superimpose that on a past relationship in which I felt someone was hating me or acting hatefully toward me. And then I can examine it and say, okay, well, was that really hate or was it just conflict or disagreement? And Mm. was I wrong or were both of us right? And if you have the true definition of it, use a past example to give you more clarity. 
then be mindful and then going forward, okay, well, I'm experiencing that same agitation. I'm interpreting this as hate. Let me go back to my experience that I did and practice and think about, okay, well, is this indeed hate? If I see it from a very um, proactive way, a very insightful way, again, a more emotionally intelligent way, I can then say, okay, well, I can reframe it correctly. And in psychology, this is called cognitive reframing. And so you are reframing a cognition or a thought, a thought or a belief. When you have thoughts and beliefs, that leads to your feelings. So you have a, a thought, whether it's spontaneous or you someone gives you that thought, that thought then makes you then have a feeling about something. And then based off of that feeling, you then have an action. So if I hear, um, I don't want any cake, I feel rejected. I may then respond with depression or hostility, and then it creates a, seg- a cycle that may not actually be accurate based off of the facts. So if you can come from it from a perspective of how do I really interpret hate and what is an actual healthy and realistic interpretation of the word hate, of the word conflict, and then when I sense those feelings, it's called experiential training. Let me go back to that experience that I just had. And what did I experience? Do I feel rejected? Okay, why do I feel rejected? And then you kind of break it down into smaller levels and then say, okay, well, then maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Maybe they didn't mean it that way. Hmm. And just so I have the phrase correct, cognitive reframing, is that what Cognitive reframing. Okay. So you're reframing your thought or you're reframing your belief. You know, in the olden days, we would have, you know, cameras. And you would, or even now, I guess with the iPhone, you can get the shot inside of that little, you know, camera that you're looking for. So when you're calling it reframing, it kind of refers to the old, well, I guess in my, I guess now I'm an olden day person. <laughs> it goes back to getting the shot in the correct frame, meaning that I'm having the thoughts in the correct frame. And this is not, if it's not what I want to see or experience, let me change the setting meaning let me change what my actual cognitions or my thoughts are to see it more correctly rather than having a biased view because of my own beliefs or my own insecurities or even my own experiences. It takes a lot to be brave enough to even say, okay, well, let me just really think about it. So you have to have a true desire to be your best and for the best to come from that relationship, from that partnership, that job, that opportunity for even even be willing to even say, well, let me put the time into thinking and being introspective, meaning I'm going inside myself to get a perspective on why I'm thinking this way or why I'm feeling this way. I love the use of the word bravery there because um, mm-hmm. I think that's what it probably feels like a lot. Yeah. Is there a is there a experience in your own life where you've mm-hmm. seen this play out where you've you've kind of gone through that process of re- cognitively reframing hate conflict? Does does anything come to mm-hmm. mind? Um I, I I never really had an experience of hate, but I did have I when you said that I had one of where I felt discriminated against. And I come from a military background as a military dependent. My dad would say military brat, but I would say military dependent. And I'm always used to being around multiple cultures. And I never had, I never, or I was never aware of being discriminated against because of me being an African-American or African-American looking person. 
until I had this one job where I was working um, at a special needs school and, um, and it was a residential program. And so what I did was I, the person ended up, the person who was in charge, so I don't give out too many details, the person who was in charge was always very antagonistic of me and would say, well, you're not asking me questions. You're going against my authority and you are acting as if you're in charge. And I completely didn't think that, but I kept thinking, I wonder if this is what discrimination looks like. Like he wants me, because I was the only minority person that was actually in in the leadership position in that entity. And I was thinking, I wonder if this is what it means to be discriminated against. And if this is what it means, because I'm not being either as a female dumber than him. So I need to go to him and ask him all these questions or is it because I'm black and he wants me to be something. And so that I really did feel like, well, I can't change being a female or being black. So what am I supposed to do? And I felt really lost until, and then I ended up leaving because I was like, okay, well, I can't change any of these variables. So I'll just have to leave and I can't. And I would then try to play small, like, okay, maybe if I ask him more questions, then I remember going to him and I made up a bunch of questions to ask him. And I felt like in that interaction, he knew that I was doing this and he took it as an offensive as, oh, she's trying to make me look stupid now. Hmm. And I was like, okay, well, I don't really know how to win in that situation. So then I left. But then afterward, I realized that he, it wasn't racism and that he didn't dislike me because he had glowing recommendations. I remember even looking at, you know, a year or two later about all the great things he wrote on me for recommendations afterward. I think it was just more that he had his own insecurities and was going through, you know, personal considerations with his um, personal conflict in his personal relationships. And because I was the only black person who was in charge, I was being told, oh, wow, you're the only black person in charge that we've had here. I became more sensitive to race that I had never been before because that was not what I was exposed to. And so that made me realize, okay, well, maybe I could have stayed because I left those students in that situation where they really did value me because I was, I felt inadequate to handle the situation to be able to cope because I misinterpreted it as racism or discrimination. So that was, that's the one example I could think of. Hope it wasn't too long. No, not at all. And it's, it's fascinating to just kind of hear your thought process through that, Renee. I'm I'm curious, like in looking back, I mean, hindsight being what it is, is there anything you would have done differently or, or, well, or even could have, could have, could have done differently in that situation to, to have the, the wherewithal to do that? Yeah. I don't think at that time I could have, because I tried all the things that I knew. Yeah. Like I tried to think, okay, well, how can I make him know that I don't think that I am, you know, trying to be this person, but also that really also went into my own insecurities because I am a nerdy person and I do like, you know, being in school and I don't want to have an A, I want to have an A plus. I don't want to have an A plus. I want to have an O for outstanding. And so I was newly kind of like out of one of one of my graduate programs. And I was still liking that. I want to be the best kind of person. But 
as a um, when I was an, a younger child, whenever I would have that and you would go to state to state or country to country and you would have the same kind of response like, oh, well, you think you're better than us. Oh, you think that you're this or you're the best student or nanny, na boo boo. And so because I never really felt that way, I just wanted to just be the best for me then um, I became very sensitive to if someone doesn't like me or they say that they think that I think that I'm better than them, that was a trigger for me. And so I didn't realize until years later that, okay, well, Renee, that was your own issue of not wanting to disappoint someone, but I didn't. And then I was trying to not Mm. play, learn how to not play small at the same time but I'm a human and humans really thrive on avoiding rejection. And so because I couldn't really navigate that or really understand it, I don't know if I could have because I was still learning myself at that time. And I think I did all that I could have done. But even when I tried to placate him, he was still offended. So it was like a a no-win situation. I probably should have stayed and not just left in the middle of the school year. I think I could have done that better. Cause I did, you know, I feel bad about the students there and I still think about them sometimes. So I think I could have done that better, but other than that, I think I did best that I could, that I knew how to do at the time. Is it fair to summarize what you just said as control what you can control? I think that would be fair. Maybe I wouldn't say control, but I would say do what you know best to do at the time. Mm. Because doing means I'm just doing what I'm doing. Control means I'm kind of controlling external variables and maintaining a facade of being in control, even when I don't understand all the variables. But if I'm just doing what I know how to do at the time, that seems less of a pressure, just from a neuro-linguistic standpoint. I love that reframe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's what i would say that that is fascinating i love that language i'm gonna actually start using that more so thank you for that okay this is so happy about that yeah this is really interesting so the question that comes to my mind then is this idea of is it sometimes necessary to remove ourselves from conflict, to experience the growth, the emotional growth that you've just, you've been talking about up to this point is, is sometimes mm-hmm. not staying in the fight, the healthiest thing, the fight in air quotes. Yes, that's right. Sometimes you do have to just remove yourself, even if it's family, remem- family members, if it's a toxic situation or where it's two minded, meaning one mind wants to have resolution the other person just wants to be right, then it may be best to just remove yourself because nothing you're going to do is going to help the situation. It may also be that you may have your own needs of either self-protection or people-pleasing or codependence. And so you're staying in not truly for the health of the relationship or to the health of the individual persons, but just because you don't know any other way of being other than with this person or in this argumentative retaliation controlling mindset. So I think it does often help you to recognize, okay, well, this is something that's no longer good for me or that I can no longer stay in and that it's healthier for me to leave than to stay. 
So Renee, I want to get into the work that you do then at the the okay. political level and how it relates okay. to everything that we've been talking about right here. The question that has been bubbling beneath the surface for me as I've been hearing you talk about all this is what about those situations where let's just I'll just lay out the scenario in my mind. A politician they're elected to office mm -hmm. with the uh, the uh, under the understanding that you are fit for office, you are fit to make decisions on our behalf. We've entrusted you this power control authority, however you want to to word it. And mm -hmm. it just seems like seems like in a lot of our political and especially our media environment, that opportunity to step away from conflict to to have these types of conversations with ourselves that you have been advocating for so far here in our conversation are mm -hmm. few and far between. Am I characterizing things right? Is that the environment or am I just getting a one-sided view of what our politicians are going through right now here in the United States? No, I think that you're accurate. It's a combination of influencing variables, meaning Persons who are attracted to politics have a particular personality style, meaning that they um, like being in front of the camera. They like having attention. They also like having power. They also like having control and making decisions. And so that's one set of variables. Then you have the current societal variable of, of persuasion, meaning that we have a social uh, existence where we can persuade you to change your mind or to change your stated beliefs by canceling you or voting for you again, or being very loud on social media and saying whatever our thoughts are. So recognizing that I'm attracted to power, personality variable or variable one. <laughs> Two, there's a social pressure to influence my perception of things or my, or my stated perceptions of, of saying things. And then three, I have a need to stay in this position and to also exert my public perception of me being a person who was in, in control and in power that you elected me to do. So therefore, who I truly am may be thwarted by variables two and three because I want to be seen as a very strong and in control person that you elected. So then I will give in to the variable number two of being just as nasty or having the, the clap back or snap backs and saying nasty things or being very sarcastic in social media so I can feed that, that monster, but also get the perception that I'm in control and in power. And so it's, it's like a, um, a, a three-pronged interlocking circle of I need to stay in power because I like this. I'm being pressured to be a certain way and I don't want to be seen as powerless with the power that you have given me. So that mm -hmm. I'll, I'll conform to the social media tactics of being antagonistic, of being as sarcastic or as petty as society is now redefining as what shows you being in control and being powerful and being able to state your position and sticking to it or doubling down, even if it makes no sense, but now it's just the act of doubling down that is seen more as authoritative and powerful and in control than actually doing something brave enough to not give into those antics. Okay. You use the word brave again. <laughs> so yes. Yes. I, yes. 
is maybe a leading question here, Renee, but is, is bravery lacking in our politicians across the spectrum? I am not pointing the finger at any one group. One. Yes. Please, please go, go on with, I know you work with a lot of politicians. I guess the reason why I say bravery is because I, I also label the clients with, with whom I work as courageous because in order to do the most good for our society, you have to be brave enough, courageous enough to not fall into your own insecurities or your own selfish desires to maintain power and control or this influence and you know po- political fame by doing what truly is best and it may not be what is the most popular. And you do have to be brave to do what's right and to say what's right, to speak the truth, even when no one else agrees with you. But what are my motivations for saying this? Not just to get more likes, not just to get more votes, but to truly create a change. And so I believe that in our society, because it has become so litigious and so um, fearful of having any public backlash, that I have to be brave enough to stand up for the truth even when it may cost me my job. But do I feel as if I'm having integrity and I'm being brave enough to do what's right, even if it may help other people, but it may cost me something in return? And to me, that is political bravery. And I don't see that much of it, which is why I really emphasize um, to my clients and to those who I'm considering working with that in order to work together, we have to do what's right for the people, for your constituents, and not what's right for your paycheck or for your after, you know, after position income after after this is over, after your term is over. Are there any that you can share? Are there any examples of clients that you've worked <laughs> with that you can share? Um, mm-hmm. And just before you answer, a, a couple come to mind for me. One in particular who I, I've I've admired the way he handled himself in the final years of his life was John McCain, mm, um, yes, senator from yes. Arizona. Yes. I, I would say, you know, of a of a generation where that courageousness, that bravery was was celebrated and and understood as a necessary requirement, um, mm-hmm. in in many ways, <laughs> right? Um, yes, but but yes. stood for things stood for things, even when it was not politically convenient or, or celebrated by his own party. Uh, I am thinking right. of the, I'm thinking of the town hall where, uh, a, a woman was accusing Obama, president Obama of being a Muslim. And he corrected her on that, even though that mm-hmm. was politically, um, probably not, not the best thing for him to do so in that setting. Are there any that you can share that you've worked with that? That's just the one that comes to mind for me that I've noticed over the last right. year. Um, well, I couldn't reveal client names, but I can give examples. Yeah, please, please do. So I think um, President Jimmy Carter, I think he did a good example of trying to stand up for what he believed and what was right. I also think of, I think, I think it was, I can't, I'm, I'm running a blank right now, Kane, the, um, the lady who also was in charge of the January 6th committee. I think that she was able to stand up for what she believed in was right, even though Liz, she ended up Liz not Cheney. winning her. Yes, um, Cheney. Yeah. Yes, not yeah. um, even though she wasn't, you know, reelected, she was rejected by her party. I think that, and only reason why I'm saying a lot of Republicans is because a lot of Democrats, and you know, not to be politically polarizing, but in this current environment, a lot of Democrats are very open to doing what is people pleasing, and there's not a lot of courage 
and actually doing what is right, even if there is no people pleasing. On the other hand, you may see a lot of Republicans who will do what sounds right, but then they may do it to the extreme and not without any, as you said earlier, without any righteous intentions, but just more self-preservation. And so I think that on both sides, what is my motivation for doing what is right? Not because the public has stamped it as this is the righteous thing to do. This is what you have to do. But what am I willing to do because of integrity, ethics, facts, or science that truly is unbiased and not self-serving? And those people are few and far between. I'm struck by, in so many of those examples that you just gave and that I even talked about, those folks were at the end of their political careers. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that is there any support that we can provide? Anything that we can do? Anything that these that our politicians can rely on that it doesn't take being in the twilight of their careers to to have this mm-hmm. moment where they're like, "You know what? I am just going to be myself and not worry about it." Is there anything like Is it even possible in our political structure, I guess, is what I'm asking. (laughs) I think it's possible because I have clients who are willing to do that. Yeah. But I I think that, you know, it's like the the chicken or the egg. Was it the end of their career because they were exiting or was Mm. it the end of their career because they took a chance and they were brave? Mm. So I think it depends on, one, being more purposeful or purpose-driven in your political position, using your political power for the sake of truly your constituents and not just to get reelected and being willing to go in with that and also staying with it. The problem is once you kind of get into the circles or you're into that position, you may get so attracted to the power that you forget what you were there for and you're trading votes you're going against your own morals. You're getting caught into the publicity, the fame, the money, the the bonus after you retire, and you kind of get lost in that and you lose yourself. And so often I serve as the honest voice to tell you what you said you wanted, what you really want to accomplish, so that you don't have to leave at the ninth hour because you were pushed out or because now you can't stand yourself your family, your children don't want to be around you because you're so power hungry and you have lost your moral compass and you're doing what's right that pleases other people that are very superficial and temporary and what they think is right. And so I work with them to be that honest, unbiased. I have no desire to have your position or be in politics. And you only have retained me because you know that Even if no one else agrees with what I'm going to say, you can trust that I will tell you the truth. So I try to help keep them on that path. And then using, of course, psychology, what are your motivations for doing this? Is this fear of rejection? Is this fear of retaliation? Do you feel as if you can't handle a scandal? Um, And then what are the reasons for that? Or do you feel as if it's more popular to just go along, to get along and okay, well, I'll just make it up for the second term. And then I'll, I'm just going to right now to store up my equity and I'll do the right thing later on. So then that's more of a selfish moment as well. So I just try to be that honest, intellectual and informed sounding board to help keep them to not have to be bowing out to then get your game together. Renee, I'm going to push you a little bit here on something you just Uh-oh, said. Okay. <laughs> you use the phrase unbiased. 
Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Can you truly be unbiased? Can anybody, can any of us truly be unbiased? If you're purposeful, you can be bi- unbiased. Now you'll still have your own like idiosyncrasies and preferences, but you have to go into a situation with the understanding that I'm going to be unbiased. For example, Renee will make a decision different from Dr. Carr. And Mm. so if it's just Renee, I'm going to tell you, yes, let's go get the iced coffee and let's go eat these extra cookies and, you know, let's do all of these things. Or yes, you're right. We should go, you know, protest and we should say mean things. But, um, Dr. Carr, I'm going into it with a different mindset because I have a different outcome. So if you go into it, this is all about me as an individual, then you're going to respond from a very personal, being more personally offended or more personally focused in your actions. But if you go into it, this is my position, I'm elected to serve the people to bring about the greatest good for my state or my country. I'm going to focus on it from that way. And then when I go home, I'll eat all the donuts, but go (laughs) into it with the mindset of reminding who you are and what your purpose is for being there, why you were elected. What happens in the moments or the instances where what Renee wants Mm -hmm. is in conflict with what Dr. Carr recommends? What do you do then? Well, I... I'm a strong believer in purpose, and I believe that people have a purpose. And I think that you're a human, so you're going to always want to give into. I must be hungry. I keep thinking about donuts and lattes. So <laughs> you're making me hungry too. Give into, <laughs> <laughs> must be have a new donut place that opened up. So I'm really thinking about making yeah. sure I get there before they close at two o'clock. So, <laughs> but you have to think about. Yes, this is what I want, but. I'm going to be committed to sacrificing my temporary pleasures or temporary gains for my ultimate goals. And so as a psychologist, this is very, and and as a traditional psychologist, this is often what we use. You're trained and taught how to, yes, the person who may have schizophrenia, which is a lot of, you know, neurological impulses and um, conditions that they can't just treat just by being self-determined. You have to have medication as well. But I really like being psychotic. I like being in the state of delusion and I feel powerful. But if there's a small part of me that wants to get better, I will just be committed to taking my medication on a daily basis. Similarly, I'm, I'm in a relationship, I'm married, and I want to be right. But more than I want to be right, I want to live happily ever after. Or again, with the donuts, I really, really love the chocolate double glazed and the caramel macchiato, but I really want to fit into this dress for the gala. So I'm going to say no to what I want right now. So when it comes to navigating, what do I want personally right now? And what is the bigger, longer term benefit? If you're more committed to the better, longer outcome than the the short burst of pleasure and gain, then you have to be disciplined to remember, okay, what do I really, really want in this moment? And let me do that. Now, part of it just takes a level of self-discipline and your true understanding of who you are and what you want. And of course, belief in purpose of what is my bigger purpose here. Then you, if you have those and you're even just working on those on day one, 
you can then make more conscious decisions of, well, who do I want to be? So there are, you know, I work with people who are not also politicians, but they're more high performing CEOs or high profile CEOs. And they may say, okay, well, yes, I'm great at doing this, but what do I want my personal brand, my personal legacy to be? How do I want to die being remembered? And I'm going to make decisions based off of that. You're talking about delayed gratification, right? Yes. Delayed gratification. Excellently said, Michael. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Delayed gratification. To go back to your your analogy from earlier in weightlifting, it's the same thing. You are putting yes. in the work right now for results that you may not see for months, right. perhaps even years, but yes, that it is a true. more sustainable, long-term thing for you. Uh, right. Apparently, it's true in the gym and it's true in politics as well, from, That's from right. what I'm it's understanding. True <laughs> <laughs> so uh, as we kind of start to lay in the plane here a little bit, you brought up scandals and crises and and the mm-hmm. things that we often ma- that we see making the news headlines, especially in politics, right? Um, yeah. You know, every day it seems like there's a new one that that we're being bombarded with. Take me inside the inner sanctum, I guess, of of what decisions are made. When a politician has to respond to a scandal, when a politician has to respond to a, a a crisis, perhaps a personal crisis or or you know a larger larger national crisis like some of what we've seen over the last gosh go back how many ever how many years I mean two thousand nine eleven mm-hmm. happened when I was a senior in high school so let's let's start there and, oh, wow. and move forward. Yeah. <laughs> take me inside, take us inside the inner sanctum of of those rooms and, and the conversations that you're having with your clients at that level on how to respond in a way that delays that gratification. Is that even possible? So when you are a high profile elected official, it's often the people who you have in the room with you who can help make or break your career. A lot of people in politics are attracted to politics because they are attracted to power, dominance, and influence. And so those personality variables can get in the way of, if I'm here to be the chief of staff, I'm here to support that person rather than to have my own agenda so I can set myself up for my future success. And so when you're a politician, you're the one who's in charge. You may have, because of ego needs, people who are around you are yes men and who will tell you what you want to hear. And so whenever I am in the room, one, I'm going to be the person who's going to tell the truth, but this is usually what happens, Um, a crisis. So let's take one that's not a personal crisis because that, because if it's personal, then there's other variables like, you know, a sex scandal is a whole completely different thing. But if it's more of like a, um, a statewide or a national crisis, whether it's a terrorist attack, international or domestic, everyone's brought into the room. And you have people in the political realm, you're having people who are going to tell you militarily what's their best strategy. You're going to have your your communications team telling you how to say it to make you look best as the president or the person, you know, in Congress or governor. And so then if I'm there, I'm more of like the outlier because if you have an attorney present, they're going to tell you how to protect yourself legally. And what's the best thing to say legally, but it's all about self-preservation. 
<clears throat> the PR is going to tell you what to say to have the best optics to make you look good so that you made a statement or that this sounds good. But all of these things are, again, very self-serving and don't really help the public understand that that it's really all about them. And so then what I would then be involved in would say, okay, well, but how do we help the people understand the truth? How do we also strategically not make you say something that's really not true because we don't have all the information? The bomb just hit the building. So how can we be strategic in giving them something that will actually help you know, decrease their trauma, decrease their fear and anxiety, but doesn't set you up for failure because you made a promise or made a statement that really wasn't true, but it protected you legally. So now people feel as if you protected yourself and made a statement, but you really don't care about your constituents. You care more about your image. And so when you're in those rooms, there's a lot of talking heads who have in their own individual agendas to push forward for either their own careers or to protect their positions. And so it's whoever the leader in charge is, wherever his or her mindset is at that time, will be who he listens, who he or she listens to. Mm-hmm. So if you have someone who is going to be focused on what should I say to make me look good, to make me look in charge and me look as the powerful person, you know, in this country or in the state, that I'm going to go with whoever is going to tickle my ears. But if I'm someone who's truly interested in how do I let my people know that we're going to be okay and I don't know all the information, how can I still say that and be authentic and not look weak, but still set myself up for more constituent loyalty by being authentic and transparent, then that's where I would come in. So, okay, this is what, this is the situation. We do want to do the optics because I understand about the, you know, how to make your, make sure you're still looking good, but being good because you're being true and you're being honest. Renee, I hope that gave. Yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> that um, that truth seeking, that that uh, perspective that you bring into those situations, we've right. kind of circled around it. But I want to ask you point blank: What is your purpose? What is your purpose in in doing the work that you do? What what gives you that sense of delayed gratification that pulls you into? what I got to believe are really tough situations sometimes. Yes. Yes. What, a lot of times I know that my, okay. Because a lot of times I do know that, okay, I'm going to probably have my contract ended (laughs) when I say this statement or tell him or her, no, you really are wrong. So when it comes to purpose, purpose evolves and you have purpose for a certain point in time. So I have, you know, I know that you're an excellent researcher. So, you know, I have five degrees. And in the beginning, my goal was to be um, Irene Cara and Donna Summer and the next fame. I just knew I wanted to be on stage and performing. But that was so I, I chose activities and careers that kind of led me to being on stage and being comfortable. But then, you know, you fast forward to, you know, my, you know, my different, you know, other graduate degrees and then getting into psychology, because when I was younger, I used to always care about how people feel and are you going to be okay? And, and I might be talking to a 75 year old person and I'm nine, but I just couldn't help but feel responsible for making sure that they were okay. So I knew that psychology made me feel better, but I was also a very, and I still am a very sensitive person. 
And so I was told, oh, Renee, you're too sensitive. You're too soft. You shouldn't go into psychology. You're going to be crying. You can't handle that. So I ended up sneaking and going and getting another degree. And I was like, this is exactly where I need to be. So I did the whole traditional route. And that was my purpose at that time. But then when I got into, um, you know, got into later on seeing that I'm only helping one person at one time, if I have a radio show or if I'm helping other people who are in charge of larger groups of people, I can help that one person help many more people. And so I just started being more and more unsatisfied with what I was doing and how I was doing it. And so I would just, okay, pray, well, how do I use my best gifts to the best of my ability? And I was a new mommy at the time. So how do I also maximize my time? And that came into, I'm used to being on camera. I'm around influential people, people who are on camera, um, doing expert testimony for high profile cases. Let's just do that. And so a lot of introspection, because I am a nerd, so thinking, studying myself constantly, <laughs> okay, well, how do I get to a better place where I feel good about how I'm helping people? And it became where I felt I was being very selfish, helping one person at a time when many people had the same challenges, or how can I help more people with my abilities and gifts rather than just sticking to a paycheck? And so then that brought me to my highest level of purpose, which is now being able to recognize that, you know, you're not a nerd for, for no reason. You don't love school and love doing homework. I'm just thinking about it gets me excited (laughs) and doing (laughs) research papers for, you know, from my podcast or from my clients, because you don't have those natural passions and anxiety just to please yourself. It's there to make you doing your purpose easier. I feel it like God's way of having like a, a, a catch for you and like a trigger. If I can, you know, get the person hooked, like, you know, you're going to like this. And if you keep liking it, you're going to do it longer and do it better. And so when I realized that, okay, well, I'm a nerd for a reason. I loved learning. I also love working with people who are on camera or being on camera. I'm very comfortable with it, but I'm also very soft and sensitive. I'm going to probably cry with you and I probably will make you you know, although I'm Dr. Carr, I might make you homemade chocolate chip cookies in the middle of the night hmm. because you're the only one who will, I'm the only one who you will listen to in your high position of power. So my cookies can be my way. So then I realized that, okay, well, my biggest purpose is to be able to help people who are in positions of power to do their greatest good for society. Because I care about my clients with all of my heart as Renee, not Dr. Carr. And I care about society and the individuals as Renee and not Dr. Carr. And I just have the title of doctor as a way to show my expertise and my training and I guess credentialed nerdiness to be able to help me do my best to help them do their best. And so when I get into those tough situations, because I'm so committed to living a life of purpose, my dissertation was also on happiness. And so helping people recognize happiness is related to, do you feel good about who you are and what you're doing and how purpose is a part of achieving higher levels of sustained happiness? So by having all of that background and having so many other jobs and careers, I know what it's like to do other things and have a big paycheck and have big titles, but being unfulfilled. And now doing the work that I do, I keep integrity and sticking to my purpose and saying the things that are unpopular and then will risk me losing my contract because I'm more committed 
to being a person of, of integrity and having purpose and using my abilities and gifts for the greater good of society more than I am about this one person or this one contract or this one opportunity. So I focus, like I was telling you about delayed gratification, like, okay, you may have to say things that are going to be, people are going to cuss you out <laughs> and they're not going <laughs> to like what you have to say. And they'll question your authority or your credibility. But I'll know that even if I lost that contract, they could never say, well, I didn't have at least one person tell me the truth. I had at least Renee was in the room and she told me, and I still chose to do something different. And to me, that keeps me focused on the bigger purpose of helping many more people at one time than just that one contract or that one governor. I'm struck by how much is, is of, of what you just said is, is what you've been talking about this whole time, which is that process of self-introspection and determining who you want to be and how many times that has morphed over time for you. I don't want to say changed, but morphed yeah. and, and shifted. Yes. Yes. That's, that's fascinating to hear that answer. So, so oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I try to encourage people to realize that do what you feel led. like when I said, not, not about being control, what do you feel led to do right now? Like yeah. when I was, when I was younger, I would have, I actually, um, again, I would, you know, write as an introspective person, I had journals since I was like seven and my mom bought me from Woolworth. And so I always remember thinking, thinking, thinking and writing, writing, writing. <clears throat> and I am a very sensitive person. And so I would have never conceived of being with politicians because I specifically wrote, I will never be in politics. I'm never going to write a book. I'm not going to do anything for the military because, you know, I grew up in the military because <clears throat> I didn't I knew that I wasn't strong enough or sturdy enough to be in those positions. But it just so so in my mindset, I did what I like to do at that time, you know, being on TV, being in talent shows. And then kind of just like, as you said, morphed into, OK, well, now you're a psychologist but you're comfortable being on camera and people are calling you from the news. Well, how do we respond to this shooting? I'm like, Oh, well, this is what you do. And so I just did what I knew how to do. And I was being who I knew how to be at that time. And then it was the nagging sense of unfulfillment or a need to do more that just helped me get to morphing and being more introspective that brought me to what I believe is my ultimate purpose at this time. Wonderfully said. I appreciate you giving that perspective there. Thank you. Well, that was my interview on the follow-up question podcast with Michael Ashford. And I do hope that you learn a little bit, not just about me, but how to identify conflict solutions in your relationships, in your workplace, or even within yourself and how those conflicts may even be from a sense of purpose or feeling unfulfilled, and how that conflict can be a good thing and can be a compass to where your next chapter or where your new path should be in life. So thank you for listening. I'm looking forward to meeting with you next week. And remember to share the information that we learned, but remember to do so using science and love. If you run